Welcome to another episode of the That's Not Real Climbing podcast. I'm your host, Jenny, and I'm excited to introduce my guest for today, Maya Witters. As a volunteer, she has been up close and personal with everything IFSC behind the scenes related. She's volunteered as a judge at the Edinburgh World Cup and done athlete management at the Morioka and Hachioji World Cups. In this episode, we'll discuss what makes commentators, route setters, judges' jobs so difficult. We'll get some insight about Team Japan, and we'll dive into all the IFSC controversies, including how she managed to get blocked by the IFSC on social media. This is a spicy one, so I hope you enjoy this conversation with Maya. Are you? How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. I am. Uh, I just moved to Tokyo literally three days ago. Oh, so oh my gosh, that's I'm, a lot of moving <laughs> effort. Yeah, I I was in the north of Japan before that, so I've just moved down to Tokyo. And uh, I'm sitting on the floor of my new room in this really janky setup in order to avoid the noise of the aircon and stuff. But no, it's good. I've um, I moved to Ogikubo, which for people who know their comp climbing, they'll realize that that's close to B-Pump uh, Ogikubo, which is the world's most notorious training gym probably. So yeah, I haven't been yet, but yeah, you've got to go. My, yeah, that's my closest now, so I, I guess I'll become a regular, but yeah, that'll be interesting for my ego. I I know some of the Japanese uh, World Cup team struggle on what, what they call V4, so <laughs> I don't know what, what I'm going to climb, minus, v, minus V5 or something. Um, that'll be... But you're going to get so good. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or or very de- demoralized. I think that's also an option. But let's let's hope for very strong. Um, I'll strive for very strong. Yeah, mental training is part of it too. So yeah, I think that's possibly what I need the most, to be honest. So it's probably a good thing. Yeah, it'll help there. Well, I I hope it works out well. I would love to hear what your experience is like there once you've <laughs> once you've tried it out. I'll make sure to let you know. Yeah. And how long have you been climbing? Um, I've been climbing about five years now, uh, with the obvious, you know, COVID breaks in between, um, climbing for me was kind of the first sport ever that I, that I really, really got obsessed with. Before that, I was just not a very like exercisey person. Like as a kid, I tried lots of different things, but I was always more of a sort of artsy kid rather than sporty. So I think it made climbing more challenging in some ways because I didn't really have any base strength or endurance or anything. But I think what really, what really caught me about it was the the sort of puzzle aspect. That's why I I really got into bouldering. I'm much more of a boulder than a, you know, lead or top rope climbing. I started off doing a top roping course to sort of challenge my fear of heights. And then I didn't know that bouldering was a thing. As far as I know, when I grew up, I'm from Belgium, and when I grew up, I don't think there was bouldering in my city, at least, because uh, I remember doing like, you know, some climbing at kids' parties and stuff like that. But I, I don't think there was bouldering, and so I did the top roping course and then discovered bouldering. And I was like, oh, 
this is interesting. So you got into it in Belgium and then you eventually moved to the UK? No, I got into it in the UK. So before I lived in Japan, I was in the UK for seven years. And yeah, that's Mm. where I did the course and where I, you know, got all into bouldering. Yeah, and I guess that's also where you started your volunteering work for for climbing. Yeah, um, I got really interested in comp climbing early on. I think comp climbing is part of the community aspect of climbing to an extent, right? That's also something that's really attractive about the sport. Like it's it's tends to be really supportive um, in the gyms. It's easy to talk to people. It's a really good way to make friends. And to me, I think comp climbing is to an extent an extension of that i think sports you know televised sports especially it it helps you know people come together and have something to discuss so um i got really interested in in the movement of comp climbing as well and in the creativity and what i perceive as freedom of it um but i sort of missed that community aspect because you know it's on youtube and you're not watching it with people so uh, it can be a bit isolating. And then if you're just, you know, discussing stuff in the YouTube comments, I think something that always surprised me about the YouTube sec- the comment section of comp climbing is it's so supportive in real life, but then... Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All the keyboard warriors come out, right? So it's interesting and so i kind of missed that aspect of having like a interesting level-headed you know well thought out discussions with people about comp climbing um so i found some of that on a on a discord group that i'm in and then uh i just also got interested in maybe trying to get more involved directly and i heard through some friends that um especially youth competition climbing they always need judges uh so i got in touch with gb climbing when they had a comp in london and i went there and i just rolled into judging for the first time Uh, it was really fun and i did a few comps like that and then they were like we're doing a world cup in edinburgh do you want to come and Honestly, I I thought they meant like, oh, you know, you can open the door or check people's tickets or something. It turned out they wanted me to judge. Um, And I was as surprised as anyone, but so I ended up going to Edinburgh, um, becoming a World Cup judge for, you know, the lead World Cup there, which was a really interesting uh, experience. And then literally about a week later, I I was going to move to Japan. And so the person from GB Climbing uh, got in touch with her counterpart in Japan was like, hey, you've got another World Cup coming up. You know, this person is World Cup judge. Do you want to, like, invite her or whatever? And so I ended up uh, volunteering at a bunch of the Japanese comps as well in the last year, not as a judge, but as in the role of athlete management, so much more backstage, guarding the isolation zone and making sure, you know, people go out onto the stage at the right time and things like that. And... So I got to do that at the Morioka and Hachiochi World Cups, as well as at uh, all of the Japanese local uh, main comps. So the Boulder Japan Cup, Lee Japan Cup, and the Combined Cup. So yeah, it's been a year of very interesting experiences. Yeah, so that is such like 
that is such a quick jump from like, oh, I started at a GB local youth comp um, to, oh, now I'm going directly to the World Cup. Um, was there anything else between that or was it just straight from one to the other? I think, well, the local youth cup, I think the thing I judged before was the youth, the national youth boulder competition. So it was, you know, a fairly uh, sort of order, orderly event, a very official thing, not not like your local gym comp, but it was a fairly big jump. And um, yeah, it's it's really interesting. I, when, when I came to Japan, um, I was told I wasn't allowed to be a judge here because actually in Japan you have several levels of qualifications that you have to go through before you would be allowed to be a judge. In the UK, we don't have that system at the moment. So that was an interesting contrast as well. And even for the athlete management position, because it requires understanding the competition flow really well, they prefer having people in those positions who have a judging license. But because I had done World Cup judging, they were like, I we guess you can do this. Um, so they, they let me do that. But it's it's a big contrast between the two, for sure. Yeah, so one of the uh, questions from the Discord, uh, someone named Suika, um, was how are judges selected? Is there like a more regimented process than what you go through usually? Or especially in the Japan team where you say that they have a bit more of a process for selecting judges? I think, you know, just like um, I was listening to your episode with Nikki from the other week, um, and just like he sort of explained that the root, root setter selection process is not superficial and quite vague. I think the same probably applies to judges. I think also one thing that people generally who watch cold climbing maybe don't realize is to what extent the IFSC is or isn't involved in the actual organization of World Cups. So the World Cups aren't organized by the IFSC per se. They're organized by national federations. These national federations, they, you know, they apply, they, they sort of have proposals of what, like, we want to host this kind of World Cup, we can do it here or there. The IFSC gets to do the decision-making on the calendar and on what happens where, but it is ultimately the national federations that do the actual organizing on the ground. The IFSC only sends their media team, you know, Matt Groom, who everyone knows, the commentator, but also that they're sort of behind the scenes uh, team, media team. And then they send normally three people per competition, a jury president, a chief judge, and a technical delegate. And those are licensed IFSC people. So I'm not entirely clear on how the licensing process for that works. I'm not saying it's not transparent. It might be. I just haven't actually tried to look into that. But so there are people who are qualified as you know, technical delegate, which means that they sort of run a lot of the, as it as the name says, technical aspects of the competition. Um, they help make decisions in case that there's rain delays like we saw in Seoul. Um, and apparently they didn't have a technical delegate at that competition. I don't know why. But so that's, that's unhelpful because your technical delegate would be pretty material in making those decisions. Um, and they make sure, you know, all the rules are followed. And then there's a, a chief judge who sort of manages the team of judges. And the team of judges will be national judges. So in Hachioji, we had a massive team of national judges, all Japanese people. And in Japan, those are all people who have the A qualification. So 
or the B qualification, but they're in training. So that's how it works in Japan. Everyone who gets to judge a World Cup has to have those qualifications, which is sort of, uh, I guess, a way to standardize judgment. But if there's any appeals, if there's any problems, it goes to the jury president, essentially. Um, and the jury president will discuss with you know the national judges and with the chief judge, um, and they'll come up, you know, they'll review video footage and they'll come up with a judgment together. But that's ultimately how that goes. So all the actual judging is done by the local federation. But obviously, it's done, you know, by multiple people per boulder or per route uh, to make sure that there's no, you know, no uh, problems or no disagreements. If there's any issue whatsoever, it tends to go to the IFSC people. And the, the chief judge is usually also the person who sort of liaises with team coaches. The team coaches are up front right behind the judges. And so... The chief judge will probably be rowing around. If someone wants to make an appeal, they'll go and have a discussion with that person and sort of, you know, guide them through the process if they need guidance. Obviously, the experienced teams don't really need guidance, but they might, you know... Emotions are high, usually, at these points, so the chief judge tends to then, you know, calm things down or say, okay, we'll review it or whatever. So that's how that goes in general. But... On the national level, the way that those national judges are selected is obviously vastly different, as we've seen between, for example, Japan and the UK. Because in the UK, we don't have a qualification system. Uh, a lot of the time, the people who judge youth competitions are just competitors' parents. So we have a lot of pretty experienced judges in the UK, but they're all parents of competitors. So obviously, if, if it's a World Cup, you're not going to have you know family relationship judging. But yeah, it's it's vastly different. Also in the UK at the World Cup, um, all the judges they, we were basically allowed to cheer on competitors uh, and to you know to just cheer them on and say come on or whatever. In Japan, absolutely not allowed because it might be confusing for the competitors. So you know there is a difference a difference in standard there. I don't. I don't want to say that, you know, the UK system is bad and I think everyone at the World Cup did a good job and ultimately you have the IFSC people there to resolve any dispute. So they would normally guarantee that, you know, judging is even across all World Cups. But there is no real standardization across the world currently in, you know, education for judges, for example. I I learned every I learned everything from just you know watching competitions and then I went to you know do do some judging and the people from GB Climbing were like yeah you know what you're doing can you come to Edinburgh please so yeah it's it's a big difference so you didn't feel like totally out of place judging in Edinburgh I felt somewhat out of place also because all of these systems behind it there there doesn't tend to be someone who says. By the way, this is how it works. So you're going to have this and this and this happening. That doesn't happen. They just go, can you come? And then you're there and you just figure out what's going on and what to do. And so it's very, it's very experience based. Um, and, but it, you know, it was, it was hugely interesting. Um, and there's, there's just things where you think, 
what why why is this happening like you i walked into the venue in edinburgh i walked into ratho and i looked at the lead wall and i went where are the bold covers why are there no bold covers and they just kind of went oh yeah we we don't have them here and i said we're gonna have we're, we're gonna have you know bold stepping incidents i just know it whenever you don't have bold covers you have incidents because you know it's such a stupid thing bold stepping i understand why it's not allowed but at the same time as a climber if you're just focusing on the sequence it can be so difficult to see where your feet are at all time and making sure that you don't touch it and of course on on the route that i judged in finals we had that problem where yoshiyuki touched a bolt i saw it happen i said to the chief judge he touched a bolt i can't judge if he used it but you're gonna get an appeal and of course they got appeals and they reviewed the footage like a hundred times over and he got downgraded for it and lost out on a medal so it's one of those things and i talked to the jury president for that competition and i said can you please please make bolt covers mandatory from next season and he said yeah yeah we're looking into it uh, i think we're going to make it mandatory and they're still not mandatory this season so we've had instance this year as well so it's one of those things that you think this should be so simple but it's not in place yet i don't know if it's just that it, they're difficult to get in some places or what it is or if it's too expensive or whatever i can't imagine them being that expensive to be honest but it's one of those things where you just think this should be so easy to solve and it's it's heartbreaking as a judge you don't ever want to demote someone for stepping on a bolt like obviously it's really unpleasant thing to have to do but yeah it happened so yeah and people get quite upset about it people get understandably very upset about it and i think nikki touched upon this as well when he said you know one thing that's also lacking in climbing is context very often in in, in competition climbing like you have an appeal happen and then at the end of the broadcast you actually don't know if the appeal's gone through or not there usually isn't very good communication between the judges and the commentating team often they're not even necessarily within speaking distance of each other they're often off to the side or in the back or even sometimes behind the wall and just watching the screens so that communication tends to not be there so you know people often complain oh the commentator doesn't even know what's going on whatever and you know again keyboard warriors coming out to complain about something that they don't know the circumstances of uh, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this to you know sort of clarify some of the circumstances that that are there but I think that is a problem like if you if you don't have a way of giving that context to viewers it makes sport very difficult to watch so you know there's definitely improvements to be made there yeah it's so hard to know like what's going on um and people get so much hate online for it. I think, especially like Matt Groom gets a lot of hate on it. I wish I could have him on the podcast one day to ask him what his thoughts are and what he's experiencing when he's actually commentating. Yeah, I, I feel bad for Matt, to be honest, because I think he's trying so hard. He has a really difficult job. He has to do a lot of traveling. Um, it's very exhausting. And, you know, the, the thing people always get him on is his pronunciation of climbers right. names especially you know foreign climbers but honestly you know i've i've looked at lists of climbers names and gone i i don't even know where to begin 
and it's not like he doesn't try i've i've spoken to him numerous times i've actually sent him voice messages in the past like teaching him the pronunciation of japanese names oh, that's so funny yeah so uh -huh. he really tries but he's dyslexic and it's just and he's british you know it's that, that doesn't help either i think um so it's is really really hard to get all of them perfectly correct and i think you know there are obvious points where he could improve but he he also has improved a lot uh, in his few years now as a commentator on the circuit, I think there's been vast improvements in the way he commentates. And, you know, let's hopefully that'll just continue. And he brings the psych. He's, you know, he's psyched about talking to climbers or watching climbing. So I think that's important as well, especially now with a climber usually as a co commentator. I think it works quite well. Um, so, yeah, but there are obviously aspects that can be improved and some of that is just down to him you know people not communicating to him he told me last time in Hachiyoji that he you know he tries to always go to the technical delegate before the comp and say oh you know can you please if something happens can you write me a little note or you know come to me or uh you know what whatever it is but do something so that I can tell the viewers um and obviously in some competitions that's easier than in others because the technical delegate is really busy you know they're busy with those judgments and with appeasing coaches and climbers and so you know communicating with the commentator doesn't always come first and at the same time you know that commentator has to do so many things at once he has to uh watch the climbing but also often they don't see the wall live so they also only have the footage that gets fed through to youtube which isn't, as we know, always the best footage. Um, he has to, sometimes if there's a, a moment where he wants a replay, he needs to signal that to his team so that they can set up the replay. He has to try and, you know, get people's attention if he needs explanation on anything. So it, it's a very difficult job. And I think, you know, people don't appreciate it enough. And it's very easy to get angry about things online. And, and I understand because I think I used to, to an extent, be one of those people. I don't think I was ever like a horrible keyboard warrior. I, I like to think that I try to be nuanced whenever I talk about things, even online. But I I used to just, you know, get mad at the IFSC for whatever, in my opinion, idiotic judgment that they made or whatever. Mm -hmm. But then once you lack get in... Lack of organization. Yeah, lack of organization or, you know... Uh, it's, it's actually funny. I, I once got blocked off of all social media by the IFSC. Right, I wanted to touch on that. <laughs> because I, um, I'd been critical of the Eurosport deal, you know, the, the deal where in Europe it's, it's now impossible without a VPN to watch uh, the broadcasts for free because it's being broadcast on Eurosport. Um, and they announced this as like, you know, an amazing thing for the sport that was going to grow the viewership and stuff. And... A lot of people were angry about it just for reasons of not being able to watch it for free anymore. But I think, you know, there is also a huge discussion point of, is this actually a good deal? Is this going to grow the viewership? Uh, because Eurosport, first of all, had commentators who knew nothing about climbing. So it was horrible to watch. And they ended up usually not broadcasting semifinals at all, or maybe online only. And even finals, you know, it was very low down the uh, list for them in terms of priority. If there was any other sports that might attract more viewers, they would broadcast that instead. So even finals 
weren't always broadcast live. Um, and obviously, if you're having them in Asia, the time zone is weird anyway. So there are lots of discussion points about, is this actually good for the sport? And also, what are you doing with the money that comes in? I think that's a fair point. Like, as the IFSC, you're getting broadcasting money. What are you doing with it? Are you investing it back into the sport? Is it going into, you know, the professional the professionalization of this sport? Is it going into development of root setters? Is it going into prize money? Spoiler alert, it's not. But they didn't communicate anything about this. So I was quite critical of this and I put a few uh, platforms because I, I'm on, you know, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook and all those things. So I, you know, on a few of those platforms, I posted a critical post in response to them saying, you know, I don't think this is good for the sport. And they ended up blocking me um, off of all social media. And I just, I was like, what, the, what is happening? This is crazy. This is like some weird dictatorship level censorship. So I sent them an email as nicely as I could muster being like, uh, excuse me, what, what the actual fuck <laughs> um, are you doing this? And uh, they were like, oh, we thought you were spamming, um, but okay, we'll unblock you, I guess. And, you know, that was like early last year. And then months later, I ended up being a judge at the World Cup. So it was this really weird, awkward, <laughs> awkward thing. And... And it's sometimes very difficult to know who's making those decisions because the IFSC also is a very, de I don't know if decentralized is the right word, but, you know, people are spread over various continents. Um, also those, the technical delegate, the jury president, chief judge, those people, they're different at every comp because those are just people who have normal day jobs who do this as like an extra thing. So they only go to like maybe three, four big comps a year um, in those capacities. So are they the IFSC? They, they're part of the IFSC, but they're not necessarily the part of the IFSC that makes those decisions. Because in Hachiuji, I sort of ended up um, running around with the IFSC people quite a lot because, you know, they needed a fair bit of uh, interpreting between English and Japanese. So I ended up running around with them quite a lot and talking to them and they were like, I told them this story and they found it very, very weird. Um, and, you know, they were like, okay, that's that's not good. So who's making these decisions? It's often quite difficult to know, like who at the IFSC is actually deciding that, you know, blocking all discussion on social media is a good thing. It doesn't seem like there's a big sort of system behind it. And when I emailed the their head of communications, essentially, to say, hey, can you please unblock me? Um, he's, I, we had a bit of discussion and I said, well, you know, I, I just think there needs to be discussion. There needs to be an open discussion about these kinds of things. And if we, if we as a community can't have discussions about, you know, what's good for this sport, then it's very much, you know, a, a sort of dictatorish point of view from which the IFSC is deciding all of this because it doesn't seem like they're listening to their athletes very much. There was a lot of athletes who didn't like this at all. Uh, it doesn't seem like they're listening to their community because you're blocking them off social media when they try to bring up points. So what's going into this discussion? And the guy sort of said, well, if you want to have discussions with the IFSC, Social media isn't the right way to do it because we just send like a report every three months to 
the chief, the top of the IFSC to tell them what's happening on social media. <laughs> so, you know, um, I think obviously, again, pe people online, people who are just viewing from the other side of YouTube, they often don't know what's going on behind the scenes. So I'm not saying, you know, you should just listen to what the majority opinion, but listening in some way might be a good thing. Fostering discussion might be a good thing and it helps to engage viewers because I think right now the IFSC really has a PR problem, basically. I, mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. They, you know, everyone kind of hates them because they don't explain why they make decisions. It's very untransparent. Um, communication is just not very good, to be honest. And they never, they never respond to points of criticism. They seem to like, like what they did with blocking me off the social media accounts. They seem to do a lot of censoring. Recently, this has come up uh, around the you know BMI and Redes discussion. Uh, for those who don't know, at the beginning of the Innsbruck IFSC World Cup finals live streams. Um, they didn't know that the microphone was already recording, and the co-commentator, Alana Yip, asked Matt Groom if he could ask her a question about what she would like to see changed within the IFSC so that she could talk about the lack of BMI testing. They cut out Alana's message, and then recently, you know, the chief, two of the, the main medical doctors on the medical board of the IFSC resigned because they said, well, we've been bringing this up for years. There's no action being taken. And um, this obviously helped bring like the message come into attention again. So this was going around on social media quite a bit. And then um, apparently a climber started this campaign where making t-shirts that say, you know, uh, IFSC, please listen and planning to uh, have a lot of people wear those in Bern at the World Championships next week. And oh, wow. from what I've seen on social media, uh, it turns out that the IFC threatened that person with a lawsuit and um, oh tried to shut them down. So a lot of weird stuff going on um, that I, I just don't think they're helping themselves really in the way they communicate or don't communicate. Um, to make this sport, you know, more enjoyable, more accessible uh, for viewers and climbers. Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of athletes also share this opinion, saying that, you know, they don't just not listen to viewers, but they don't listen to athletes very well either. So, mm -hmm. you know, if as a sports body, you're not listening to anyone who's actually involved in doing your sports, what, what are you doing, really? That's... <laughs> And, I, you know, I don't want to just be critical. I think there's been improvements in some of the communication in the last season. I think they're doing a bit better with posting on social media and with trying to engage and create a story to an extent. But if you suppress discussion every time something slightly controversial happens, then, you know, you're undoing your own efforts, I think. Yeah. Do you know if they have, like, a social media team or is there, like... I don't know. Do they have any way of reaching out properly? I think their social media team is one person. Um, I'm not sure, but I think that it's one person mostly running it. Um, 
And yeah, I, I don't know if they have much of a policy behind it, to be honest. Or if they have a policy, it doesn't necessarily seem well-informed or, you know, as someone who does communications myself, I don't think it's uh, it's the best communication policy that they have in place for their own reputation, as well as for, you know, engaging people and engaging. Yeah, clearly. Um, but going back to uh, what you mentioned about the uh, Eurosport deal and how athletes were responding to it, um, I guess, how does it affect athletes? And also after it's been like a year or so since this has happened, um, has there been any like updates on whether it's been actually good for them or anyone? No, I think I I had a, a brief discussion with Sasha Gayo about this at one point where at the time she said, well, I don't really get why people are so upset about this. It's if we get to be on television, that's good for us, right? And, you know, I, I tried to make the argument that it just depends if you're gaining or losing viewers, essentially, because ultimately climbing, it's booming. It's getting much bigger, but it's not main fully mainstream yet and it's not always the easiest to understand like the rules aren't the details of the rules aren't always easy to understand and i think when you have a sport like that it's very difficult to just get viewership from people randomly happening upon it so the big question is you know if you put this on television right now are you actually gaining viewers or are you losing them because you know, if you look at people online again communicating, it's a lot of them saying, well, I'm not watching anymore because I'm not paying for it. Especially because there are also repeated complaints, even from the people who normally like to watch it, that, you know, the footage isn't very good. The camera work, you know, often zooms in when we actually need to see the whole climber. It's not terribly well coordinated. Commentating isn't always the best. Again, there's this communication issue when, when there's an appeal, we don't necessarily know what's going on. So those things are very difficult, I think, if you want to just attract viewers to happen upon your sport. I think that's unlikely to happen at this point, unless you, you know, manage to improve on a bunch of those points, but also manage to sort of have better PR for climbing in general as a federation, as a sport, you know, you need stories, I think, in sport in order for people to stay engaged and inspired. And that's one thing that's been really difficult, I think, this season is because we have the Olympic qualifying coming up. So many athletes have been skipping, skipping the World Cups, and it makes it really difficult to find the narrative line throughout the season. It's not like there's not really been a battle for the overall title. Um, and I, I think that's just, you know, it makes it really, really difficult for people to stay interested, to stay engaged. Also, I think Nikki mentioned this in, in his interview about, you know, climbing personalities and who, who are the big personalities? Who would you trust to explain climbing to people who don't know climbing? And that's, I think, also a point where, you know, a federation can do so much work. And again, they've they've been sort of doing stuff this season. They've had like their golden moment for every comp where they've highlighted things on social media and, you know, they, they tried to sort of bring out those things. They, they've tried to do some more interviews with people, which I think is an improvement. 
and I think it's it's a good evolution, but there's a lot more work to be done. And you know, I think realistically, if you want to do it well, you probably need a bigger social media team. You need more people involved. Uh, you need probably some good PR people who know uh, you know where to help you, and you need to just be more transparent as a federation. I think that's why you know uh, an in- initiative like this podcast is really great because it helps us spread some insight into behind the scenes of comp climbing. Uh, however, however limited, however limited to you know my experience or the things that I know which isn't very much, um, but, you know, why why don't we get to see more of that from the IFSC? Yeah. Yeah, I'm really hoping to sort of fill that gap because I just wish that we could learn more about the athletes or learn more about behind the scenes, just like have footage that we can see. Um, so I am really hoping to fill that gap and maybe one day they'll be like, hey, do you want to interview people as part of the IFSC? <laughs> No, that'd be amazing. Yeah. I think, you know, this this sport we're we're in the middle of an evolution of professionalization with this sport. And being in the middle of an evolution like that means it's a really interesting time. There's lots of change happening, there's lots of new things all the time. But it also has a lot of challenges. You know, it means that we'll run into problems, we'll run into issues where people disagree. And also one of the big problems, I think, is that the, prof- the professionalization of the sport isn't happening at the same rate everywhere. So it's not happening at the same rate in different countries, within different national federations. It's not necessarily happening at the same rate within the different disciplines of the sport or within, you know, the management site and the route setting site and all of, all of those different things. And that makes it really tricky because it means that there's different levels of money going around in different places and different countries. It means that it's really difficult to leave stuff up to national federations when national federations aren't really an established thing everywhere. So I think that brings along a lot of challenges. And again, that makes it interesting, but it means that, you know, you just run run into issues and you can see it in so many different things. I think, you know, there's countries where there's a statute where athletes can be employed by the army. And that means that they just have a, an income that comes from the army um, and they don't have to, you know, have uh, day jobs necessarily or rely on sponsors in and order what to... Countries? What countries are those? I know I know that this is the case in France and Slovenia. Mm. Uh, I don't know in which other countries, but I know that this is a system that some countries have. And then there's some countries where there isn't such a support system. And so athletes really have to rely on prize money or mm-hmm. on sponsorships. And that makes it really hard. In a country like Japan, you know, you can see a vast difference. There's so many talented athletes, but there's a vast difference in sort of the security levels that they have. There's some big names like Miwononaka or, you know, Tomoe Narasaki or people like that who are very well established. They're, you know, they, they go on television here. They're pretty well-known faces by now. Um, sponsored by really big brands, especially Miho, you know, with Adidas, Beats sponsorship, uh, big yogurt brand sponsoring her. So, you know, she's very secure in that. Um, And then there's lots of other really talented climbers who go to university and, you know, sort of have this 
um, student athlete statute, which mm-hmm. I think kind of helps them uh, sort of balancing both, but doesn't do much in terms of financial support. And so they all they all work at climbing gyms. Um, they they work as root setters, and so they have to somehow balance training, going to all these World Cups, and their day job and studying. And it's just not a level playing field that way. So there is a big question there of, you know, where where is the money? Is there money in the different countries for all the athletes? Um, we, ha- we have seen in the past, um, you know, athletes crowdfunding in order to be able to even go to the World Cups because mm-hmm. it's expensive. And if your federation doesn't have the budget to send X amount of climbers to a World Cup, but you still want to go, then you have to self-fund. I think this is still the case we saw it for i think we saw it this season for some of the um indonesian uh boulderers because their speed team is really well established but their boulder and lead climbers aren't as well known yet they have a, a twins uh who compete and you know they've they've been crowdfunding to be able to go to the big events i know the physio for team australia had to crowdfund because the federation didn't have budget to send a physio. Oh my god. So, you know, these are things that are going to change and hopefully get better. But as we are in that process of evolution, there's lots of interesting little bits of friction, I guess you could call it. Yeah, I mean, money must be a pretty big problem to overcome in this uh sport because i mean even even if you win the prize money is pretty small isn't it oh it's low yeah it's really low and i i think it's been reduced recently as well so you know and i i just think also just the fact looking at this past season of how many people have been skipping comps i think that tells you how low worth the prize money is because they've all been sort of skipping those those comps and it also tells you that there isn't much prize money in gaining the overall title because no one's been competing for the overall title it doesn't seem like anyone's been interested in it at all so if the athletes aren't even interested in it how can we as viewers ever be interested in it also it doesn't really get mentioned throughout the season right like it's the last comp of the season oh by the way we also have the overall podium and someone won right yeah they never talk about it no, so yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of work to be done in developing storylines across seasons, and you know, keeping viewers engaged. And mm-hmm. you know, it's it is also tricky with things being in different time zones. You can't always watch everything live anyway. But mm-hmm. you know, giving people a reason to rewatch your comp, um, and making them you know what really want to see what happened. I think there's a lot of work to be done there. Yeah. Do you know what the prize money is for like gold, silver, bronze? And is there a separate there's a separate prize money for winning the overall season? I don't know. I I don't know the actual amount. I know that it's not very high. Um but I don't think I I've tried to look for it, but I don't think it's officially publicized at least publicly on the IFSC website at the moment. Um but yeah, I I think it's you know not not above five thousand dollars probably for winning a World Cup. I think it's 
possibly well below that. I guess in Japan, at least, um, some athletes, you say, make their money from route setting, um, sponsorships, if you're really big, I guess. Um, is that part of the reason maybe why in Team Japan there's so much turbulence between like who's rising and who just kind of like falls out and we don't ever hear from them again? I think it's part of the reason why probably. Um, I think there's a lot of, there's the level of professionalization in this country is quite high compared to most countries or especially compared, you know, the, the only other one that I have experience with is the UK and Japan is much more professional in the way you know, the comp system here is set up. There's way more regional competitions and local competitions that get official judges in. So actually people here who do the judging qualification, they often have judging duties every other weekend, basically going around to, you know, prefectural competitions, youth competitions. So there's a volume of comp climbing here that allows for that professionalization but also that volume of comp climbing means you have a vast field of really strong climbers and you know the best way that team japan has found to select their uh, international representatives every year is by a con by the start of the season that's the boulder japan cup elite japan cup the combined cup the speed cup normally their team for the year is selected at that competition which means you have one shot. So unless unless you already have guaranteed representation because the top 10, world top 10 every year, they automatically get to go to all the World Cups. But so unless you're in the top 10 for this year with Team Japan, you have to basically, you know, do your best and try and get into finals for those competitions at the start of the season every year. And if you don't make it, then you're not in the selection for the year. And you have to, you know, just stick with national competitions and so everything hinges on world competition which is a tricky thing for example last year we saw that uh, Tomoa had a bit of a disaster in his semi-finals for the lead cup I think he slipped really low on one route and then on the other route he had a, a clipping problem and this was in qualification because because it was two routes um, he skipped the first clip uh, accidentally and so he didn't even make it to semis. And so he wasn't in the lead team last year, which obviously, you know, for him was a big problem looking at, you know, combined training and stuff. And so he, uh, he worked really hard to improve that this year. But yeah, it, it's, it's obviously somewhat down to luck as well when it's, it's all down to one competition for the team selection. And I think Japan is the only country that has this problem, really, uh, at the moment. Maybe USA and France have big enough teams that they have to do some selecting as well. Um, but Japan is the biggest one where, you know, you see people in one year and then out the next year. Um, but there is obviously also, you know, the problem there of the people who are already at the top and who are self-sufficient, who can, you know, rely on sponsors, um, and don't need to have day jobs. They have way more time to train. They probably have money for a coach. Um, they, you know, they have access to better training facilities. You know, I mean, Tomoa, um, Tomoa Narasaki and Akio Noguchi have their own gym um, that was funded by private money. Uh, 
that's like one of the best training facilities uh, in the country, but you know, it's private. So it's just down to who they invite. So access is a big problem and consistency is a big problem because if you need to constantly, you know, scramble to have enough money or to also focus on your studies or whatever, then I think it's much more difficult to put in a consistent performance. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and so you've been pretty up close and personal with Team Japan now, even despite like whatever money issues there are. Um, how how do you think from their training regimen, what makes them so dominant in the sport compared to other countries? You know, the, the level of professionalization that we were talking about is a factor to an extent. Um, they have a big history they have a lot of depth of field which means you know there's uh a lot of examples that young climbers can look up to um they have a history in the sport which always helps um it's interesting sometimes because they don't necessarily have the best training facilities obviously you know i'm near b pump here uh, b pump is one of the meant to be one of the world's best training gyms um where also, you know, the grading has nothing to do with real life grading. And I don't know if that's just some some sort of idea of, oh, if we make the grades insanely hard, then people will want to chase them. I don't know if that's, you know, part of the reasoning. But for example, lead walls, there really aren't that many in the country. Um, and there's a big access problem when it comes to training for lead climbing. Uh, just because there is a lack of space, it's difficult to find buildings that are high enough. Um, so there's a there's a lot of bouldering gyms, but not that much lead climbing. So to an extent, it's surprising that you know Team Japan are that strong in lead as well, um, even though there is that access problem. So sometimes it's really difficult to tell why they are so strong. They also tend to not train as a team because they have such a big team. Everyone lives different parts of the country. So unless there's a training camp organized somewhere, I think you know they'll. They'll do training camps maybe a few times a year, often abroad as well, for for the representative uh, team of that year. So I think they had a training camp a few weeks ago in Innsbruck, for example. Um, so unless it's, it's that kind of an event, they don't tend to train as a team. They all have their own local gyms. Some of them have their own coaches. So there there are obviously team coaches for Team Japan, but they're most, mostly coaches you know, during the competition. And people will have their own, you know, private coaching separately from that. That's probably self-funded as well. So I can't tell you what the secret is, really. Uh, they're just, you know, they're very motivated to train and they, they work really hard. Um, and they have, they have a good history. They have a pretty professional, you know, organization. Um, but... Other than that, I, I don't know where the magic is. Yeah, I mean, I would think um, even if you don't have a big, nice lead training facility, I hear a lot of athletes just kind of use the spray wall and do endurance training on that, but I'm sure it is a bit different, so I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of ways to do endurance training, but I think one of the things that you see, for example, we saw it in Morioka, we had some athletes who... It was their first time ever at uh, a World Cup, but it was also the first time anyone from their country was at a World Cup. Mm. And 
even if you know you've been watching the sport and you might be the top in your country if you've never been able to actually try out at that level then it can be really really difficult to actually judge it accurately and we had a girl from Mongolia um and I just felt really bad for her because she got zero on all of the boulders and then she fell off hold four on the lead wall or something and that doesn't mean she's you know not a good climber she's probably very strong in her country and you know that these routes tend to be around what ab plus or something so maybe she climbs ab plus it's well possible but it's such a different style as well right comp climbing if there isn't really comp climbing in your country and there's no setting for comp climbing then how are you going to practice your dynamic moves and you might not be at all familiar with the hold sets you know the holds are so different modern comp climbing holds big macros, big volumes. It's hugely different from climbing on just, you know, little old-fashioned crimps or whatever. So, yeah, there's there's a big difference there. There's a big gap that I think unless you've experienced that level and you have some of that infrastructure in your country and you have it available, it's going to be very, very difficult to actually compete at that level. Maybe that's part of why Team Japan is so strong, at least in bouldering, because they have B-Pump that's always challenging even their top athletes. I think that's part of it. Obviously, B-Pump also isn't the only you know, gym in the country that has that high level of setting. There's lots of gyms. Also, I think Japan has a fairly high number of um, IFSC qualified root setters. Or at least, you know, you, there's a few that you see at a lot of the the World Cups or other big international competitions. Um, they have quite a lot of really, really good root setters who, who go and set internationally and then also set at local gyms um, and who will set specific events or trip training moves at B-Pump or even privately, I think, you know, Tomo Narasaki often just invites good root setters to his his gym to set for him so if you have that access to really high level setting as an athlete i think that is a huge boost for your training potential uh, because then you know you can actually measure your strength on the sort of stuff that you're going to encounter at world cups at the world level whereas you know if you're just training in some old old basement gym uh somewhere in in a in a faraway corner of the country it's just a lot harder you can get as strong as you like but as we've seen as Nikki also discussed you know climbing isn't just about being very strong because if it would be it'd be impossible to distinguish levels the level between people and you know people in again in the comment sections always love to go oh this this is not real climbing it's parkour people are jumping around and it's just you know you try setting a boulder that doesn't have any of those elements, but that still lets you distinguish the level between the world's strongest climbers. Because I, I can tell you, on a strength level, they're all very close together. So if you don't have any learned like moves that require learning on the spot, then you're just going to either get all flashes or all you know zeros across the board and then everyone will just complain about the separation in the scores instead exactly so you you can't really win if you complain about one and the other 
So I I think, you know, it must be so hard for root setters. They get so much hate. Uh, anytime they try anything new, they get hate. You know, in Hachiyoji, we had that really cool jump into a palm press uh, mm, yeah. that no one got in the finals. And then they were, everyone was like, oh, uh, bad setting in finals. Like, no one got the boulder. And then, you know, it just turns out this is a move nobody had seen. And once... Once Meshdi was told the beta, he just yeah. got on it and did it in trainers. And so, mm-hmm. is that bad root setting? No, I don't think it is because you're setting your season opener. So, you're trying to set stuff that's interesting, stuff that maybe they haven't seen before, stuff that's tricky. And, you know, the, the margins between no one getting it and just one person getting it are really, really thin. And whether that's a root reading thing or just, you know, conditions play a big role, whether it's hot or cold. Um, sometimes, especially when, you, when you're setting outside, you know, a lot of the competitions happen outdoors. Um, it's really difficult because temperatures can swing by like 20 degrees Celsius from one day to the next. Um, and it does, it really does affect how easy or hard it is to climb something at that level yeah so it's it's such a hard job and they get so much hate um and also very little sort of respect um from people when when they do it right or when it you know when things go their way so you know i'm honestly pretty much impressed that anyone still wants to do the job given how as a community we sort of tend to vilify these people who are really really essential to comp climbing and to climbing in general like okay unless you only climb outdoors if you didn't have root setters then you you can't train you know you can't go to a gym you can't so these people are really essential and and they deserve a lot more like recognition and respect i think for sure yeah well put going back to uh, the Japanese team, um, someone on the Discord had a question about their experience with outdoor climbing. Um, they asked, how much experience do the Japanese comp climbers have outdoors? From the West, we rarely hear about their outdoor achievements, despite Japan being quite famous for its outdoor climbing. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, individual variety. I think there's quite a lot of climbers in Japan who don't maybe climb outdoors that much. Um, so exclusive gym beasts like you, which might to an extent help with, um, you know, how specialized they are and how good they are at comp climbing. At the same time, there's, you know, there's people who climb at insane levels outdoors here, but they don't tend to be the same people who comp climb. Uh, although we we have so we have Satsuyama, who is a uh, former uh, competition climber who now exclusively puts up new lines outdoors. He does a lot of lead and trad. He goes to bolt new places. So he uh, he climbs really hard. Um, we have a few people like that who are like former World Cup climbers who's now moved to outdoor climbing. And then, of course, we have Team uh, Rockdo, who are uh, a sort of outfit of, I think, four, three or four really, really strong climbers who exclusively climb outdoors. Um, although, I mean, 
not exclusively their big achievements are outdoors, but they're all all they're also all root setters, I think. So they do indoor setting as well. But they uh, they're boulderers and they go and just put up insane lines outdoors. So we saw uh, floating last year a V seventeen uh, is a line that uh, one of them put up, and I think they've just got back from uh, Rocklands in South Africa where they've crushed a whole bunch of really hard boulders. So you do have you have really good outdoor climbing in this country, and you have people who are extremely strong. I think one thing that's tricky about outdoor climbing in this country is the season for it is quite short. It's completely hmm. impossible right now in summer. Like it's 35 degrees Celsius outside. I don't have any idea what that is in Fahrenheit. I'm sorry, but okay. um, it's it's hot, but it's also extremely humid. Like humidity levels tend to go around 70%. So you just like slip straight off anything. There's There's no way you can climb outdoors right now. And so for high performance climbing, it almost has to be in winter, but then it, it can't snow and it can't rain. So mm. it is pretty tricky to find the right conditions to do outdoor climbing in this country because mm. spring and autumn are fairly warm and can be wet as well. Mm -hmm. So for high performance outdoor climbing, that also isn't ideal. You want it to be colder. So I think, yeah, that's probably one of the reasons that makes it quite challenging in this country. It's not like, you know, Fontainebleau where you can have decent conditions probably for three out of four scenes, seasons of the year. And also access, I guess, uh, a lot of these areas. There is a fair, fair few like reasonably developed areas, but I think a lot of them are inaccessible if you don't have a car. So that makes it tricky as well. Other than that, I had a few IFSC controversies that I wanted to touch on. God, I feel um, like I feel like I've already criticized them so much, but a, a bit. But like these aren't so much like about the IFSC, just rather like things that have happened um, and things that you might have mentioned earlier. Um, so the first one uh, was also a Discord question. Um, which one was this? So at the Chamonix comp. Um, thoughts on Cheung being DQ'd for misclipping um, or Whoa, skipping God, the yeah. clip. I think, yeah, you also mentioned Tomoe had done that. Um, this person said, I might be misremembering, but I thought Sean McCall Z clipped in 2019, but was able to keep climbing. Um, I know it's not quite the same, but feels weird if you can get disqualified for one clipping error, but not another. Um, do you know the rules on this? Yeah, so... I I was really a bit taken aback by how militantly people were wrong in the comments. How how militantly people were arguing for oh this rule is stupid, it needs to be changed, blah blah blah. The rule is there for safety because first first and foremost safety but also fairness. Because fairness because if you skip a clip, you know, clipping takes energy. So if you skip a clip and you can keep climbing, then that would incentivize people to skip clips, which is dangerous. Because they're literally there to make sure people don't ground fall while they're doing, you know, really, while they're, they're putting up a real high level climbing performance on the wall. You prefer them not to die. Now, in, I would say, 99% of cases, if someone skipped a clip, going back to fix it would be dangerous. Because going back to fix it, even if you've already clipped a higher point, so you're not going to ground fall, 
but it increases your chances of falling on your own rope. Also, down climbing an 8B plus is insanely hard. So the, the chances of it going well are low anyway. But again, it increases your chances of getting tangled in your own rope, of taking a, a difficult fall. It's hard for the B layer to know what to do with the slack. And also, if as a judge, you would have to decide in the moment whether it's safe or not for the climber to down climb and go and reclip. That puts a lot of strain on a judge because in this split second, you know, you can't make the climber wait on the wall. So it would be down to a judge's decision to decide whether or not it was safe to go and reclip. So instead of that, we have a very clear and simple rule, which is clip all the clips in order. And it means that you take away any confusion, you take away any personal opinion, and you have a really clear and simple rule that tells climbers what to do, and they're aware of this. Now, in the specific case of Chehyun uh, Se, you know, skipping that clip and immediately fixing it from, from the same position, there's no danger. But again, if you're going to change the rule to make it more arbitrary, you're just opening the door to more discussion and to more fuzziness and more difficulty, I think. So that rule is there for safety and for fairness. It's very clear. It's one of the clearest rules in climbing because we already have quite a lot of things that are down to the judge's opinion. Like, did they get the plus or not? Like, did they control the zone or not? Like, legit starting positions. All of those things are already down to discussion. So why on earth would you want to make more rules down to people's personal judgment? I think it makes no sense at all. And of course, if your favorite, um, you know, in a in a moment of lack of focus or whatever, or just bad luck skips a clip, I know it's heartbreaking. Like nobody wants to see it. That's that's why everyone got so angry. The incident that Nikki uh, mentioned when you know Andra stepped on the bolt and and you know missed his Olympic ticket at that point. You know, that's exactly why we need bolt covers because that makes the rule much clearer. It doesn't make it down to the judge's decision, oh, did they use it or not? Because you, if you just brush a bolt, it's fine. But the judge has to decide whether you use the bolt or not and whether you got any aid from it. And then, you know, so that, that again, it, it makes it down to people's decision. If we just have bolt covers, then it's easy because anyone can step on the bolt cover and we've decided that that doesn't help them so they can step on it. So we need rules like that in climbing where it clarifies things then rather than making it more difficult. So arguing that the rules are stupid and need to be changed just because your favorite, you know, lost out on maybe a chance of a gold medal in that competition. I just, I just think people need to be a little bit more reasonable than that and, and kind of think about the actual consequences of what they're proposing. And so Z-clipping is okay then? Z-clipping is okay because it's not dangerous to fix essentially, because you, you just need to um, unclip the the order of, of things that you did. And it was at this point that she realized she messed up. Right, uh, dear viewers, I am just cutting in for myself because I realized I um, did a bad job explaining the difference between Z-clipping and clipping out of sequence. So the big difference is when you're clipping out of sequence, you need to down climb in order to fix the clip as I said, in 99% of cases. 
um, if you're set clipping, you don't need to down climb because all you need to do is unclip the top clip and reclip it with the correct end of the rope. So it's not the same situation and that's why one is deemed safe by the rules and the other isn't deemed safe. One involves down climbing, um, which might involve falling on your own rope, which is just really difficult to do on an 8B plus anyway. The other one doesn't involve any down climbing at all and can be fixed on the spot. So that's why you have that difference. And also it's not as much down to judgment then. Like it's immediately clear that you z-clipped in. So um, I think the rule makes sense. I mean, I think you if, if you think, oh, z-clipping versus clipping in order, that's a weird rule. Then I think the rule that needs to change is, is that z-clipping is allowed, not the other way around. Like I, I kind of think I, I kind of think the weird rule in this case is the fact that you're allowed to, you know, go and correct Z clipping. So, you know, I, I just think if the rules are clear and easy to follow, keep them that way, please. Like m more confusing rules is the last thing we need in in climbing. Yeah. Okay. Totally fair. That makes sense. Okay. Well, let's try to end on a, a lighter note, I guess. Um, a few questions from the Discord, and well, first I was wondering um, if you have any like insights or anecdotes from Team Japan. Um, any like athlete quirks that you can think of? Um, or one time I think you had mentioned that there's this like pull-up guy in Team Japan. I don't really know what that means, but if you know <laughs> what that means, no. Um... I, I don't know. Again, everyone is different. Everyone has different, you know, ways that they approach warming up. And I think this is one, for me, it's one of the interesting things of, you know, being in athlete management at these World Cups um, is you get to see what goes on behind the scenes. You know, you get to see how an isolation zone works. You get to see how athletes warm up, how they, how they mentally approach a competition. You know, some of them are very boisterous and outgoing. Some of them really sort of just sit in a corner. Aimori, for example, tends to read manga when, because usually she climbs last because she's, you know, the strongest. True. So she has to wait in isolation for a very long time. And very often she's in the corner reading manga because obviously in isolation, you know, athletes don't have access to the internet. So yeah, how how do people keep themselves busy? Stuff like that, that's that's quite interesting to see and you know some of them are surprisingly nervous to Mo Narasaki is always surprisingly nervous even though he's so experienced and you know he, he he sort of has this image of being you know a tough guy maybe but he's always like pacing about in isolation zone and like if there's other Japanese athletes there sort of trying to make conversation and so those, those kinds of things are really interesting to watch. Obviously, the downside of being in athlete management is you don't actually get to see the climbing because you're behind the stage. But yeah, it's it's fun to see people sort of and see how their personalities come out. Uh, for example, as well, Ayala Karem from um, Team Israel. She's really, really funny when she's in, in ISO, so at the Hachioji finals. She was constantly listening to music and she was like air drumming and dancing and just like rocking out, which I guess is her way of channeling her nerves. And, you know, right on, right up until she'd have to go out on stage, she'd be like just vibing and then, you know, go on and come back and just start. So because with these things, because the especially in finals, 
as athlete management, you're guided by the broadcasting schedule. So there'll be one person there with a radio who gets told the timing of when athletes have to go out. They'll get like a 10 second warning and a five second warning, things like that. And so our job is to make sure athletes are ready at the right time. And of course, um, you, you don't want to be late. You don't want to, you know, run the risk of getting behind schedule. So you try to ask athletes to, you know, when the previous person goes out on stage, please already put your shoes on and get yourself ready. But there's like a balance and, you know, everyone has their own style and some people really want to stay in their own world. Um, Natalia Grossman, for example, does the same. She's just, she has music on and she doesn't like, she usually has her eyes closed. So sometimes you have to go and tap her and be like, sorry, you need to come up and stand by the door for me. Um, but yeah, with Ayala, after a while, I was like, you know, just keep your headphones on and right before you go on stage, give them to me. I'll make sure to put them with your luggage so you can keep vibing. And and so you do stuff like that and that's quite fun. And then at the Hachioji sort of after party reception thing, she came up to me and she was like, did you like my air drumming? So there is, uh, yeah, it's just really funny. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, um, it's interesting to hear about how different athletes manage their nerves. Um, especially, I mean, I think for Tomoa, like he has a lot riding on his performance. People are always watching him no matter what. Um, I think I also heard that Yoshiyuki is also very nervous. Yeah, I think I don't think I've experienced him in a in a World Cup final recently, but yeah, um, I think he's a bit nervous, but not quite as sort of excited, uh, nervous as as Samoa. Samoa really, he like walks around like this with his arms folded oh. across his chest, and like I could see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. And so, a couple of Discord questions, just quick ones. Who's your favorite climber? Ooh, uh, I'm Maury's definitely up there. Um, I I've really enjoyed watching Toby Roberts this season. Uh, oh, for sure, just absolutely crush it. Um, and I think you know part of what helps with Toby is you can see his personality come out, and he has his YouTube channel, which you know helps people have some insight into how he trains and and how how he thinks. So I I think things like that. Are really helpful um, as a viewer to have more of a relationship with the climbers as well. So again, that's where there's work to be done by the IFSC. Also, I think by national federations. I feel like this season we've seen a lot more national federations get on Instagram. For example, there's a fair few more um, national federations now that have Instagram accounts that post about their climbers. I think that also helps with this sort of creating a story I think with Aimori she doesn't have to create a story for herself she's so strong that it, and and she always seems slightly like the underdog you know pre people like supporting the underdog because she's so small um, and and you know I think that just inspires people to want to root for her so that's always helpful as well um but yeah, again, I think I think it's just easier to get inspired by climbers where there's a bit of a story to be had. Uh, and I think this season, you know, one of the things that could have been played out a lot more is like Toby Roberts and um, Sorato and Naku, both young guns, both super strong. Like 
it could have, you know, played around a lot more with, you know, not necessarily a rivalry, but sort of comparing them and, and seeing how, how, you know, they view each other, whether they view each other as, you know, direct competition or so that kind of stuff I think would be good and interesting to, to play with from a communication standpoint. Yeah, I wish we could hear more from them. I've I've just heard that they talk to each other a bit. They competed together in the youth cups as well, but would love to learn more about that. Yeah, it's always also with you know non English speaking climbers. There, there's always that point of how do we communicate? And I've actually just uh, been doing some um, English interview training with the the Japanese youth team. So they're they're on a training camp at the moment, and I've uh, I've been kind of testing how well they do in an English interview uh, after their uh, simulation competition, so that you know the coaches know who they need to interpret for and who they can leave alone uh, when they go to the Youth World Championships next month, basically. So I think you know there's there's a lot of room for stuff like that as well. Um, I think Team Japan can do with some English communication training also the adult team to be honest but it's always a question of you know is there budget like within the federation almost everything is volunteer run so you have the the coaches obviously are paid the physios for the team are paid but other than that there seems to be very very little budget even in a highly professionalized federation like the japanese one to pay anyone Uh, so the judges as well, they don't get paid for what they do, but at least they get like transport and hotel costs when they go to competitions. Everyone else, it's just, you know, pay out of your own pocket. Um, except for obviously like, you know, the competition manager, you know, the local technical delegate. They they all have their costs paid, but almost everything is just volunteer run. There is there just isn't money within federations for stuff like this. So that's another thing, you know, that with professionalization, you have to at some point also be able to make more money. So there's a question of how do we do that? How do we attract bigger sponsorship to climbing? How do we, you know, manage those budgets? Where does the money need to go? It's it's impossible to organize events like this, you know, without a substantial amount of money and you know if you want sport to be professional then people need to be able to sustain themselves from it so if it runs entirely on volunteers that doesn't necessarily need to mean the quality is not good because again we've seen that Japan is very good at organizing these things and they do it all volunteer run but you know you need some level of investment in order to grow yeah all right okay one more light question um i actually i don't know if you'll um know this one because i'm not super familiar but um one person asked where's kai harada um he was my favorite i miss seeing him compete with his flowy effortless climbing style yeah he um i think maybe already before uh, the Olympics or right after the Olympics, he got sick and I have no details on oh. the nature of this, but it seems to be some sort of chronic thing that he's been really struggling with. And 
he's from the communication I've heard, which is basically only his own social media. Um, you know, he had a he he tried to come back this year at the Boulder Japan Cup, and he had a, an awful performance, unfortunately. Mm. Um, so I don't think that inspired confidence. But yeah, lately what I've heard is that he's training hard and and like working hard to you know get on top of whatever the medical issue is, and mm. you know ho- hoping to make that comeback in the next season. Okay. Damn it. Well, that was not a light question. Um, I hope <laughs> I, I hope he can get better. I hope that um, he can overcome whatever illness he's going through. Um, you know, okay. I, I don't I don't want this to feel like it's all been, you know, disaster talk and, and, and just criticism. As I've said, I do think the IFSC has been improving on on certain points, um, including some of their you know social media communication in this past season. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, we, we are a sport that's growing and with that is going to come, you know, friction and and issues. And I just hope that, you know, through initiatives like this podcast and and other things, we can open up that discussion and hopefully get people to have more insights into how comp climbing works and, you know, ultimately have that sort of permeate through to the top and to the IFSC and, and, you know, maybe this isn't something that's going to be anywhere near perfect in the next, you know, five or 10 years or whatever. But as long as we can keep that development going and hopefully, you know, keep the discussions open rather than just everyone criticizing each other and and shutting down discussions, then I think, you know, this sport is going to go to really interesting places. And, and I hope to be part of it. And I hope, you know, everyone who enjoys watching it now is going to continue to enjoy that. And I would really encourage people if, you know, they like watching comp climbing to see if you can maybe volunteer at a local comp. Um, it, you know, it doesn't have to be a massive national or international thing, but just start, you know, with your local climbing gyms competition, see if they need any help running it, if they need any judges and, and just, you know, see how things are organized for yourself. And I think, for me, it's been really interesting and eye-opening, and I hope to be able to continue to also develop in this world and and you know get to go to many more clubs. And um, you know, if if you feel like something is not going well, I think, or if if you feel like you know there's problems with sport climbing or whatever, the best thing you can do is get involved and see what little impact you can have. Um, by getting involved and by putting in some effort and, and, you know, you'll get to know people, you'll get to see places you didn't know existed maybe. And, um, I think that's just the best way to go about it. Well, yeah, I think that was a perfect, amazing point to end on. Um, and I think that was everything I wanted to cover. So thanks for joining me today. Um, would you like to let everyone know, yeah. Um, do you want to let everyone know where they can find you if they want to learn more about behind the scenes of World Cups or if maybe they have complaints? Yeah, unfortunately, it seems <laughs> Don't like come to everything me with just complaints. comes down to the um, money. Okay. No, sure. Um, um, that's what we've uh, kept coming back to today. If you're watching on YouTube, I'm sure I'll be in, in the YouTube comments as well. I'll be happy to answer more questions there. So if anyone has any, maybe, you know, head to um, That's Not Real Climbing YouTube channel and I'll respond to some stuff there and you can also find me on instagram it's at maya sounds awesome well thank you again it was amazing to talk to you 
Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for making it to the end of the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, I would love to hear your discussion and thoughts in the comments below. And don't forget to like and subscribe if you enjoyed. If you're listening through a podcasting platform, I'd appreciate if you rated it five stars and you can continue the discussion through my competition climbing discord server linked in the description through all of the podcasting platforms. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.